0: Hi, everybody. This is Kim C. And you're listening to the year of underrated Stephen King. This is a literary book podcast where this university fiction teacher is happy to shed all the tears for the beautiful words of Stephen King. Hi, everyone. Do pardon the delay on this episode. Thank you so much for being with me. We do did it. We made it, folks. Part 6, the end. This will be our final episode covering The Green Mile. It is the final crescendo of this wonderful six-part investigation of the 1996 novel that has melted me heart and soul. Oh. I know it's a bit dramatic to say so early, but friends, I think I love this book. I really do. There is something incredibly special about this story, and now that I'm on the other side of it, it's just begging to be shared, loved, explored, and studied. And today, folks, today we go for the gold we're going to do our ultimate best to wrap up all thoughts on the green mile for now that is on our show at least these novels are always open and king is forever so we will happily talk about them any other occasion but for today we shall endeavor to leave nothing unexplored nothing unsaid Having said that, this might be a lengthy one, but in addition to covering the last 140 pages of this book, this is the longest installment we've had thus far, we're also going to talk about the 1999 film by Frank Darvant, because of course, of course, of course, we must. It is legendary. So to kick us off once more, if you haven't yet read The Green Mile or you haven't caught up with our coverage episode by episode, it's really recommended that you do that. However, it's not entirely necessary. Just be aware that I'm going to reveal a lot. And by a lot, I mean a lot, folks. This is going to be... A one thousand percent completely spoilerific from start to finish ride because I really need to explore all angles of this with you and I want to talk about the conclusion of this story and I, I I have to I have to reveal all all of the plot twists so buyer beware I'm going for the throat here with all the details so please 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 do not let me ruin this for you. I beg of you, please be caught up with your reading. Be completely finished with The Green Mile so I do not ruin it for you because number one, this story is incredible, all caps. And number two, we have some huge plot surprises. Guys, oh my gosh, part six goes off like a bomb. Dear folks, I... I was not prepared for all of the reveals that we got in this installment. It's just, it's a lot. So we have a lot to discuss and focus on. So just a heads up, please be cautious as you step forward. Make sure you're 100% ready to have everything revealed to you. Everything. So in today's episode, we're going to have a similar format as we've done with the other five parts. We're going to have a quick recap from last week's episode, part five, night journey. And then we're going to have a summary of what went down in part six. And that's when all the secrets will be out of the bag. So heads up there. I'm planning to reveal all of it. And then we'll transition to our next section where I'm going to introduce a few last minute new characters who join the story. I definitely think they're worth mentioning and then we're going to discuss some of the points I want to elaborate further on. Uh, Some zones of part six that I'm very hungry to unpack because they're either working really well or not so well. But mostly because I just want to spend some more time on them. There's a lot of richness to dissect. Uh, we have more things to say. So and then after that, we're going to conclude with exploring that 1999 film by Frank Darabont. We'll talk, about, uh, we'll talk about why it is a glorious success, why it is perfection and magic and heart melting and uh, how Kim C started to cry uh, with the opening credits. Like there hadn't, there wasn't even, <laughs> there wasn't even any actors on screen and I started crying so uh more on that uh just a heads up folks i'm a little emotional the the green mile has uh definitely uh, made a punching bag out of my heart so i'm gonna try to keep it locked in for this episode however if the voice cracks or if you hear some sniffles uh apologies for my very tender heart and emotional state i am I've been emotionally ravaged by this glorious tale, ergo, uh, just a heads up, this might be more of a weepy one (laughs) because this has been a tremendous journey and this episode is gonna be meaty, folks. It's gonna be juicy and packed with content. Uh, As I was compiling my notes, I realized, oh, wow, wow. This might be my first five-hour episode. Clearly, that's how it's going to go down. So we're just going to say all we have to say to honor this tremendous, tremendous title in the King catalog. But let's get started, dear ones. Let's do it. All right, let's get everybody caught up with a recap from last week's episode, Part 5, Night Journey. So in Part 5... The full plan was to get coffee and his healing powers to warden Hal Moores's wife, Melinda Moore's, She is dying of a brain tumor. She has months to live. And so once Paul realizes that they got a guy that might be able to save her, the ultimate goal and plan is to get coffee to her. That is the driving action. So the e-block squad starts moving quickly to get that done. And first things first, they got to shut up a little punk-ass Percy Wetmore, and they get him into a straitjacket, lock him in the solitary confinement area, and then if I... I believe this is what it was. I might be um, mixing it up. They have to also sedate Wild Bill, who's absolutely insane. And so they give him some soda pop with a sedative in it. So he passes out and that's pretty great. And then Dean Stanton stays behind. He's got a family to take care of. He can't lose his job. So he stays behind to keep watch, but Paul, Harry and Brutal take John Coffey out of the prison into the night. They drive 25 miles to Hal Moore's house where they get uh, John into Melinda's room. Oh my god guys, some crazy straight up exorcist stuff goes down. More details on that scene in my part five episode if you want to jump back there. But John removes the illness out of Melinda. He completely heals her and she gives him a necklace with a saint christopher pendant on it which i don't know if i mentioned in the last episode Uh, for those who don't know saint christopher is the patron saint of travelers he also protects those faring by sea so a lot of sailors or navy men um, semen, I also believe is the appropriate term, I think. <laughs> uh, they utilize St. Christopher medallions. I really wish I would have mentioned that in last week's episode. I don't know if I did. Apologies there. But she gives him a necklace with a St. Christopher pendant on it. And she also has this beautiful quote, I remember, where she's kind of awakening from this near-death state and she looks at john and she says i dreamed of you i was wandering around in the dark and so were you and we found each other very very touching um but uh, they head back to the prison, and John is not looking good. He is not feeling good because, contrary to what the reader has seen thus far in the story, after John Coffey performs a miracle, he coughs up the bad stuff in the form of black bugs, or noceums is the exact word that King uses. They. Are expelled they turn white fly away disappear but John hasn't coughed up anything and he is looking gray and ill and his breathing is labored and he's not doing good at all but the e-block squad arrive at the tunnel to head back into the green mile and that concludes part five night journey twas most excellent and now part six are you ready are you guys ready let's do this holy crap let's go okay guys um part six summary let's do it coffee on the mile Okay, so we begin once more at Georgia Pines with our elderly Paul Edgecombe. He is continuing his handwritten journey of The Green Mile and the story of John Coffey. He's nearly finished and his friend Elaine is, she's so sweet, Elaine Connolly, she's looking after him, bringing him snacks and whatnot. And of course, uh, of course, of course resident jerk and georgia pine staff member brad dolan uh, arrives on the scene starts picking on paul starts hurting him again, grabbing his wrist in a very cruel way, trying to see what he's writing. But insert hero Elaine Connolly with a tray of breakfast. She snaps at Dolan and tells him, you better kick rocks, you better GTFO because my grandson is a U.S. representative. And uh, yeah, y- you won't be able to get a job cleaning toilets at a bowling alley if you don't get the hell out of here and back off and leave paul alone and she's gonna fire him or her grandson rather will fire him in a flash so brad backs off thankfully and then paul guides the reader back to 1932 back to cold mountain penitentiary where we are right where we left off with night journey we where- here for the very last time. So shortly after the e-block squad gets John Coffee back into his cell, he's still not looking good. They let Percy out and he looks a little bit draggled, but no worse for wear. And Percy, he's seemingly a little less bratty than usual because he's kind of been humbled by this, uh, captured, <laughs> uh, sort of kidnapped, not really kidnapped, but this sort of harnessing, um, experience. Uh, but this is when it goes south, guys. Buckle up, get ready. Uh, okay. This, uh, starts off explosively. So, is explosively explosively? I don't know. I don't think that's an adverb that works. Anyway, <laughs> we'll scratch that. This starts off quite huge. Percy is walking down the mile, about to go home, telling the guys, you can clock me out before you go. And then John Coffey reaches an arm through the bars, snags Percy, pulls him to the bars, and puts his mouth on his mouth. And he breathes all the toxic tumor poison into Percy. He bru- he pushes it all into Percy. And the E-Block squad are kind of in shock, uh, but Percy is kind of there for a good chunk of time it's it's a pretty intense moment a lot of energy being exchanged and john Coffey's just breathing into him and so when it's over percy steps away from the bars he doesn't say a word he walks down the mile toward william Wharton's cell pulls out his gun and shoots wild bill six times in his sleep dead Percy just murders William Morton in cold blood uh what excuse me what uh did not see that coming at all uh, oh my gosh super twist um it, I'm speechless by that so what's even better is what is revealed next this is super amazing dudes uh okay so what we get next is that percy never speaks again folks but rather becomes a patient at the briar ridge mental hospital where he was all set to transfer to as a guard but becomes a patient and he is a patient at that facility basically for the next 30 years until he dies in 1965. Oh, uh, wow. I love it. <laughs> oh my God. You guys, that is huge. That is sweet justice for this particular blossoming sociopath. I'm incredibly into it. I, oh my gosh, I it just, he's just frozen in madness for the rest of his life. Uh, that is ice cold and totally appropriate. And I love it. I absolutely am a fan. So next, after this additional miracle of sorts, uh, sort of, while Bill is out of the picture, Percy is out of the picture. And we, as the reader, have a really cool, detective slice of the story where Paul Edgecombe tries to uncover more about who really killed the Duderick girls. He's still on the hunt because, of course, they've seen John do miraculous things with nothing but benevolence attached to them. So how could he possibly be the person who committed this heinous crime? Paul, in his soul, knows it's not true. So he travels and meets with some more sheriffs in various counties. And I'm going to talk more about those gentlemen in our next section. But he assembles the E-block squad at he and Janice's table over dinner, so another meetup at the Edgecombe house over food, and they hash out crime scene stuff and uncover from Paul's travels that a Will Bonnie, a man named Will Bonnie, helped paint the barn and doghouse of the Dederick household earlier that year, approximately about a month before the two girls were murdered. And it was a three day job, Mr. Will Bonney worked uh, there, uh, dined with the family, he didn't stay with the family, but he was there for three days, eating a couple meals, uh, exchanging frivolity with the family, and it's revealed that Will Bonney is the real name of famous cowboy outlaw, Billy the Kid. Who in real life cowboy billy the kid if you guys didn't know he killed a bunch of people um almost 10 8 to 10 people all over the southwest before getting killed himself at the age of 21 and uh this guy in our story this will bonnie guy was even younger than that he was i believe king says he must be about 20 years of age now and about 19 at the time of his crime spree so bottom line the point i'm getting to uh this scene allows the reader to uncover that wild bill wharton is the real murderer of kathy and cora dederick nine-year-old twins he was there he's a perv he's a psycho he brutally raped and murdered them and fled and john coffee tried to revive them he tried to bring them back but it was too late and at the end of this dinner scene it is unanimous to the e-block squad and janice edgecombe that john Coffey is one million percent innocent of the crime he's going to be executed for and because he is a black man in the south in 1932 there is no way they can try to disprove it especially because because Wild Bill is now dead, and presumably six feet under, and this terrible sheriff of Trapingas County, more on him later, or he might be another county, forgive me on that, um, but he's never going to change his mind. He's got his man, and that's that, and that's the cruel world they live in, and it's devastating. Uh, but we're going to talk more about this dinner scene in greater detail in the next section, But um, well, because I really want to highlight a part That is absolutely amazing and I really enjoyed, uh, this area, this distillation of the story. Um, so I wanted to touch on it really, really quick. Um, more on the dinner scene in the next section, but we're going to have to jump back to part five night journey just a second. Um... But when the squad was leading John out of the prison to help Melinda Moores, Wild Bill, he was asleep. So he did pass out from the sedated soda pop, he did. He was asleep, but then he comes to for a quick second and he reaches out and touches John on the arm. And this is the part I should have covered in Night Journey. I don't think I did, Um, but John looks at him, looks at his arm touching him and he calls him a bad man. And it's later revealed that the touch is what revealed the crime to John. Wild Bill touched John and he knows. And it's assumed that John later uses Percy as a weapon to destroy Wild Bill for what he did to the girl. So the touch thing, as I kind of mentioned in part three of Coffee's hands, is very huge. And it looks like not only is Coffee's touch his own personal touch incredibly powerful but the touch he receives from others is equally um, intense and powerful but the next chunk after the dinner scene is Paul is talking to John after he's had a shower and they have done a run through of the execution much like what we saw in part two with the native inmate Arlen Bitterbuck they rehearsed it and basically paul is talking to john and getting his last meal order and uh this is the area of part six that i'm just weeping the entire time it's one of the most touching moments of the book um granted all of part six is pretty spectacular not gonna lie more on that later but we find out that john is okay with what's about to happen to him he doesn't want anyone to, to start an uprising, to fight on his behalf. And he his reason is, and what he tells Paul, is that he's in pain. As in pain in his soul. And he would like it to be over. And it's okay uh, what's going to happen. He's okay with it. And um, it's what will happen. It... It's not going to bring peace, but acceptance to the reader um, that John Coffey, just by existing, because he's so special and has these abilities that allow him to feel so much, quite literally, per John, the pain of the world, he's actually okay with letting it all be over, which breaks me, it really does. He is um, such a tragic character. But what's super key here what's the most in this entire this entire chapter just slays me guys so once paul sort of learns all these things and it's probably the most verbose we see john covey this is the most he talks in the entire novel he grabs paul's hand in a kind of friendly embrace and he holds onto it and paul starts to feel a surge of energy flow into him he feels it he sees things he feels tingly and he starts to get frightened he it's very intense it's a surge and he breaks the grip and after that he is feeling like a super charged human he is like super mario after a mushroom he is filled with energy he has laser sharp vision he can hear harry or it's brutal's thoughts he can hear brutal's thoughts and he is so jazzed that he has to get out of his car on the drive home and sprint he just is so filled with life force energy it is super super wild um but Paul Edgecombe kind of gets a firsthand look at what John's reality might be or the impact of, of John's power just the amount of life force energy that this man has inside of him it's incredible so shortly after that scene we are in um we have learned of, of John's last meal, uh, which is meatloaf, mashed potatoes, gravy, and Janice Edgecomb's peach cobbler, and uh, it he's pretty much done with it. Um, he's sort of ready to go, and Paul goes over and tells him to take off the St. Christopher pendant because it's about to begin um and so the e-block squad they are barely holding it together everyone is on the brink of breaking down and freaking out because they know john goffey is holy he is a holy man he is a, a creature of heaven or he is you know something so divine and they know what's about to be done to him is wrong in all ways of human wrong of all ways of of, of wrong could be um, and it's breaking them and they are having a hard time. And in this area, it's, it's, it's such a beautiful King writing. It's so good, you guys. Uh, in this area, we get some truly gorgeous haunting King reveals for us constant readers. Oftentimes King reveals the passing or the fates of characters in a very Kingian, dramatic, lovely way. And, uh, as he's, as John is, led to old sparky there's an execution audience who's goading him and saying terrible things and they're mostly coming from marjorie dederick who is insane with grief and just full of hate and brokenness but the Block squad does all the right things they say all the right things they just dear friends oh my gosh we have to take a brief pause just because i i if you read this scene kind of fast or i i encourage you to go back to this scene because it is so visceral it is so incredibly written i the experience of it my heart was pounding i felt like my body temperature dropped i was like i i my entire i was clenching my entire body was just in a clench it is so detailed in the steps and the oncoming doom that king has dangling like looming towards us we as the reader are begging for it to stop to not happen it really feels on par with someone just handing you a weapon and telling you to kill a puppy it's it's about the equivalent it is awful but beautifully done i just can't gush enough about the power of this scene how incredibly well written it is devastating beautiful all in the same space incredibly powerful Please reread it if you kind of went through it kind of fast or if you listen to it on audiobook. I highly recommend listen to it again real slow or get your text and just kind of go through it again because it is off the charts. It's off the charts, guys. It's in another level of incredible. It is so moving. Um, So a little bit more on the fates of the E-block squad. Uh, Before John is taken into Old Sparky, we find that sweet precious Dean Stanton is killed only four months after John uh, dies. He's stabbed by an inmate and bleeds out on the C-block after he transferred out of E-block very tragic uh brutal lives until uh he's i believe in his 50s he has a heart attack while eating a sandwich in 1958 harry has the longest life journey he hangs around until he's about 80 Uh, curtis anderson who is the um execution supervisor he goes overseas he enlists after Pearl harbor but he dies before he can get overseas he was killed at fort bragg in an accident and there are a few more other King and Death reveals that are poignant. and then we arrive back at Georgia Pines with the final scenes of Elaine reading Paul's story. She really loves it and uh, takes a walk with him to the shed off the Georgia Pines property. and much to the reader's surprise, paul has been sneaking off there every day to be with mr jingles who found him after all this time he's old and gray and slow but so is paul because elaine and the reader also learns that paul is 104 years old rather than the 80 years she thought him to be and uh we kind of we as the reader kinda know why uh mr jingles and paul of course received a great big dose of john coffee power but mr jingles can still do tricks and paul brings him pieces of toast and it's pretty magical until another encounter with jerk-off Brad Dolan creates a ruckus and sweet listeners it is right around this time that Mr. Jingles takes his last breath and dies. Elaine and Paul bury him nearby and the final scene there is a prayer in French much like Edouard Delacroix did over 60 years before. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. And that's not quite the end, although it's a beautiful ending. And if the story would have ended there, I would have been one satisfied customer, let me tell you. But we have two endings. I'm going to talk about those in my next section. But that is the end minus one more scene, one more bonus scene I'm going to talk about soon. But that's it, folks. (sighs) Oh, my heart, my beaten, bruised, and broken heart. Oh, dear listeners. Um, man, this thing really got me in the end, guys. All of part six. All of part six just had me in a constant state of dabbing tears, just weeping the whole time. Um, I read a few passages over. I... I Yeah, there was a a pretty hard cry. The hardest cry came with a movie, more on that later, but uh, there was was a great big ball of emotion from this text and from this experience. So we're going to transition to the next section where we're going to examine new characters who joined our story a little late in the game. We're going to take a look at an excerpt from the text because I got to gush over some gorgeous king writing. More moments from the story that I think can be explored a little deeper. Some areas I absolutely love and treasure. And finally, to conclude our Green Mile coverage, we're going to take a look at the 1999 film and just talk about it. Let our hearts pump blood again (laughs) once more. But yes, folks, let's do it. Let's climb up the steps to old Sparky one last time. I'll see you in the next section. everybody how about we uh strap into old sparky one last time as we explore the final fantastic content, the last installment of The Green Mile, part six, Coffee on the Mile. I got some stuff I want to talk to you guys about, and I'm going to kick it off with the introduction of a few characters who come to us a little bit last minute. The first one is Deputy Sheriff Robert McGee of Trapingas County. We meet him shortly after the fallout of Night Journey, the death of wild bill and the recent catatonia of percy wetmore uh paul goes down there to find more info on the case because he's just really convinced that coffee is innocent and so if that's the case well then who killed those girls so rob uh mcgee is a little bit of a stubborn man and he only talks to Paul because Wild Bill is dead I think that's the only reason and Paul kind of plays it off like oh I'm just sort of into it for my own curiosity so it's Robert McKee who kind of tells him about this Will Bonnie who helped the family paint a barn about a month before the girls were murdered and he stayed in town young guy nice as can be whatever whatever and that's kind of how Paul picks it up. Um, and he takes that information to Janice and the E-Block squad over dinner, and that's how they kind of put it all together that, uh, Wild Bill Wharton is the murderer of Kathy and Cora Dedrick. Uh, the other name that gets mentioned is Sheriff Homer Crybus of Trapingas County. So I guess deputy is not, I need to get better with my law enforcement terms, but Homer Crybus is the main guy. We don't have a direct scene with him, but Paul... Uh, mentions that he's a really stubborn jerk of a guy. He doesn't even really want to talk to him. Uh, He's 1000% not going to listen to reason of any kind. He's not going to hear any alternative to the case. As far as he's concerned, he's got their man. And especially if it's a black man, they don't even want to, you know, there, there could be no other guilty party, which is devastating. He is also mentioned to be quite corpulent, which as you constant readers know, um, there's never a lot of kind adjectives associated with that when they're described in King Works, unfortunately, so there's that, but we do see Homer Cribbs at John Coffey's execution, and he just looks, like, mean and, um, not very approachable. Uh, So those two gentlemen, I think are pretty interesting and they come to us around chapter six and seven of Coffee on the Mile. So the next area I want to explore with you guys is a really awesome scene. This of course was not in the movie, but it was a really surprising scene for me. So the E-Block squad and Janice and Paul are all having dinner. So this is once the reader knows that Wild Bill is the real killer and Paul himself knows it in his heart. He had a really big sob about it. He was crying to Janice. He just knows that Wild Bill is the one and so he's explaining all the facts to the eBlock squad and everybody's having this really cool like crime scene uh, armchair detective moment. But Janice... Edgecombe is so amazing in this scene, guys. She is really surprisingly compelling, and I love this. It's it's a, it's one of those scenes where you keep thinking about it. And so basically, what happens is Janice is quite a feisty lady. She's really involved in this conversation, and Melinda Moore's is her friend, and Janice also seems to be like a level-headed, lovely person who cares about justice, and once she realized that Paul, her husband, was healed by John Coffey and that Melinda Moores was healed by John Coffey, and now they know that a completely different bad guy is responsible for the Dedrick murders, she is kind of in shock, like, so what do you mean you're just going to let this guy die? So you're just going to kill this man? who has done nothing but help people and she kind of snaps in a way that is so fitting and i think it's how the reader feels and she this is like the most visually cool scene she swoops her arm over the table and knocks everything off it's a full spread of dinner guys like dishes forks serving spoons heaps of mashed potatoes or, or a plate of biscuits, like, on the floor, crashing, breaking. This is a mess she has to clean up, no doubt. And she just, like, just swooshes it all to the ground, just sweeps it all. She goes on the porch and just sobs. And i love it i i love that you know this is 1932 um gender roles were very fixed and in place especially in the south which is hypothetically where we are um and yeah this is huge this is a lady who um ladies were supposed to be meek and mild quiet uh you know especially concerned with um affairs of men or their husbands or but this lady is no she is comprehending the immense injustice the immense horrific wrong of it all like the immorality is crushing to her and she just she can't help but to throw a fit. She just explodes and just wrecks dinner and wrecks this table setting and makes a mess out of everything just to kind of say if if this is going to happen, then then what good is anything? Like if if this is allowed to happen, how can we go on? How can we live? How can, you know, and it's just like this explosive moment where the human heart is coming to terms with this gross injustice and immorality and yet there's nothing anybody can do. It's, or, or rather they just don't know what to do. They, they're just sort of, everybody's stuck and screwed in a huge way. But this is an awesome scene and it's not explored in the film and I, When I first read it, a a part of me thought it might be too much, just a little bit, like because it's kind of out of nowhere. Like, you know she's getting heated, you know she's getting really um, upset about it, but then all of a sudden it's like everything goes flying onto the floor, breaking and mess and they're all like left in shock and it's this huge dramatic scene and I thought to myself, is it too much? And then I, the more I thought about it, I was like, no, because this is kind of what the reader feels this is what the the human heart feels this is this is so wrong that an innocent man who works miracles who literally heals the sick is going to be served up for slaughter oh my god yeah she just like freaks out and it's so appropriate and it's a really powerful scene and i really really liked it so the second topic I want to talk about is our dual endings so it's not necessarily a dual ending but it really feels like one guys so this novel ends with chapter 12 um, Well, will take I take that back it officially ends like the actual novel concludes with chapter 13 however if you read the end of chapter 12 and you just put the book down it feels complete 1000%. It feels like the perfect button to this amazing story. It is heartfelt. It's somber and glorious and moving and at the end of chapter 12, it's done. You can feel it. You're satisfied. You can shut the book. But yet, we get one more chapter and Chapter 13 is this incredibly powerful bonus scene, this kind of extra note there where King describes how Paul lost his wife, Janice. We know from earlier chapters that Janice was lost in a bus accident. That's a direct quote. That's all we know. But in chapter 13 we actually see it go down and it is graphic dear ones it is graphic and visceral and explosive per steve king you know how he works um we've got bodies and body parts and fire and rain and twisted metal and it's just it is dramatic and paul sees a vision or the ghost or a mirage, I don't know, of John Coffey in the distance as Janice is sort of dying right in front of him and he calls out to John, it is heartbreaking, oh my god, it's heartbreaking, and he calls out to John for help and he is yelling and screaming that why can't he help Janice, he helped Melinda Moores, why can't he save his Janice and it's quite heartbreaking. Um, but it, it does create a more somber note, I think. I think chapter 12 was somber, but hopeful. And chapter 13 is like not as hopeful. It's, um, it kind of brings the story full circle to the, the ugliness and the pain of the human spirit sometimes, or maybe not necessarily the human spirit, but, You know looking at the preciousness that was john coffee and everything that was against him and how beauty and love and light just really can't survive in uh, the human worlds we just find a way to destroy it somehow and uh that's a huge can of worms i don't want to trail too far off into another galaxy but i would like for you guys to explore this with me read chapter 12, just kind of pause for a second and imagine there's nothing more. It is so satisfying. It is, if it would have ended there, I would have been fine. Then, uh, finish up with chapter 13 and it's, it's a little bit of a tonal shift, but I love them both. Um, I don't feel chapter 13 is needed. However, because it's there, it's amazing in its, by itself, it's incredible. I, I love it. Um, I love them both. Um, I really do. It's, it's such a weird thing because I'm perfectly content with chapter 12 ending it. But chapter 13, even though it does sort of drag the tone down a little bit and kind of open up some deeper, darker questions and observations, it's powerful. It's very powerful. And the fact that he kind of sees John and cries out to him, and it's heartbreaking and awesome. And so my point is here, I love them both. Um, I love them both and I, I, you know, I wouldn't change anything. I'm just kind of observing that like, wow, this, this chapter 13 kind of feels like a bonus scene. It really feels like an extra scene and that 12 is really where it ended and that 13 is just kind of, um, more visceral carnage to break your heart even more, I guess. (laughs) So, um, It works it really does and uh, I love them both I wouldn't change a thing but I would love for you guys to uh, yeah explore that with me let me know what you think let me know if you think the tone uh, dips more than I think or if it's actually if it's actually okay and of course we have this tremendous last line I have to share it with you guys it's just it's glorious Um, where Paul says we each owe a death there are no exceptions i know that but sometimes oh god the green mile is so long my heart (sighs) but yeah so um the dual endings and then lastly folks uh like we started our conversation in part three coffee's hands i want to look at this last Glimpse of the precious character of John Coffee and kind of talk about some of the revelations I had as the story was unfolding. So, this last point that we have is John Coffee, a miracle of nature. So, in part three, if you guys remember, I talked about John Coffee as having Christ like tendencies, uh, behaviors, and perhaps being a messianic character. But now that the story is finished, I'm not sure if messianic is the right word I would attribute to it. However, this is me diving perhaps a little too deep. I'm going to try to not float too far off the ground, but uh, stay with me. So as I mentioned previously, the word Messiah, of course, is a Hebrew word meaning one who was sent and it's got a lot of meanings for Christians and for Jews, but in literature we have messianic characters all over the place and they're typically attached to people who are foretold to bring peace, bring forth the miraculous and whose life or actions will impact many. Uh, Or if he or she is martyred for a great purpose, it's usually to save mankind. And so in this novel, we as the reader don't have any indication that messianic characteristics are connected to John's life. So we have a few, not as much as I thought. So basically how I kind of came to terms with this is that if we make a chart with John Coffee on the left and Jesus Christ on the right, the comparisons we have are healing power, similar initials, and unjust death, and that's about it but for a lot of readers that's all they need and i think there's a lot of readers of the green mile there's a lot of people out there who see john coffee as a jesus avatar of some kind and they want to see him that way and that's fine because who knows maybe after jesus's miracles he was drained and you know um really depleted and had to go cough up something i don't know it is written that almost every miraculous healing jesus performed after it was over he would go off by himself to pray and recuperate uh but maybe jesus was in a constant state of weeping from feeling the world's pain we'll never know we also don't know if the people jesus healed lived a long time, uh, lived longer than their natural lifespan. Although I have always wondered about Lazarus because that guy, dear friends, that guy was dead for three days when Jesus brought him back. So who knows? I always kind of imagine that he was maybe one of the first immortals. Um, but there were a few Jesus only characteristics that definitely separate Jesus and John Coffee in a way that is strong enough for me to not really look at John like a pseudo-Jesus, but rather a miracle of God, a miracle of nature, a holy man, um, a, a vessel of light and life force and goodness, but not a God himself. So, and this is kind of hard. I think that there are some readers that fall into two camps. There are readers who see what they want to see and believe what they want to believe about John, but what I say to that is we must look at the text, dear friends. We must look at what King gives us, and I stick with that. We have to stick to it, and in this story, King gives us a few Christ-like similarities, a few details that kind of lean us in that direction, but the majority of what's provided is that John Coffey is a mysterious man with limited intellectual range he is kind and good and filled with overflowing life force overflowing energy so much so that he's able to bring people back from death um especially what we see with uh, melinda moores and mr jingles and there's also talk of of john helping uh men who had died in a church accident so we we get a lot of that stuff um but what we don't see that would make him messianic is relating those miracles to god like most prophets would all things uh would be associated with god um and that's if you notice every miracle uh everything that Jesus did was in reference to God, in partnership with God. We don't have that with John at all. What we also don't have in the text is anything to do with one's soul being changed or transformed, which Jesus did in spades. Uh, So whenever you would hang out with Jesus, he was a bit of a body-soul makeover, if you will. Uh, When you encountered him, you weren't just healed, you were a different person, dear folks. And that is why we have the phrase born again. Uh, People use that phrase in Christian traditions because it is referenced as a new creation. You are literally a new creation. Um, And they perceive life from that stance and uh and you could see it people would leave their entire lives to follow this guy from nazareth and we don't really get that with john's presence in the text it's not hinted to that john's life is a greater mission connecting him to a stronger purpose like the life of jesus so i don't think we have that on albeit with the few folks who worked the mile those were the only guys who were able to witness that John's really special but not something that caused all of them to leave their lives behind and start a new movement. Um, But I love this area in the film. In the movie, the script says it perfectly when Paul Edgecombe calls him one of God's true miracles and and that I think is very fitting. So John Coffey, he is a physical embodiment of strength, and physical resilience, life force energy. He's kind, good, sweet, caring, gentle. Um, And in my imagination, I believe that when John is, when I observe him as a character in my mind, just wandering and walking from place to place, taking odd jobs, he must have had so many animal friends. I know that's a little Disney. It's a little, you know, Disney princess, but I just, I think he must have, he's such a presence of light and goodness. And he's wrapped up in this incredibly strong package, most likely to withstand all the pain he has to endure. But he is a miracle. He is a true miracle, um, of a human being, but it's, it's, he has to, there's a high cost associated with that miraculousness. So in conclusion, I I kind of feel that there's there's only a few things that are that are Christ-like, but for the most part, I I think John is just an incredible, magnificent miracle of nature. Um, not that nature is devoid of God. And please forgive me if anything was sacrilegious in delivery. That was not my intention. Um, if anyone felt I was irreverent with anything. But I I think that John is a holy man. Holy, of course, is simply a definition for other than, beyond. Um, John is beyond. He's beyond our human evil, um, but he's susceptible to it. Uh, he is resilient in physical strength. His, his spirit and his life force and this energy he carries with him, this power that he has to read minds and to to calm people down to to heal um, he's just a miraculous life force Uh, yielding so much power and energy within him but I I don't think I can attribute the title of messianic to him I wanted to in part three I tried I was getting really excited about it and I was like oh my gosh messianic character but as it kind of unfolded I was like no it's really not as christ-like as it's not messianic um we are christ-like a little bit but um that term i don't feel works but john is wow that's all i can say and the other thing i could say is i think he's he's one of those characters that's a gift he's a gift to all of us readers he's just amazing and having said that uh let's prepare our hearts for a beautiful excerpt of text this is one of my favorites Uh, fingers crossed I could keep it together I think we're gonna do okay Uh, let's let's do our best here to make it work Um, this is I believe in chapter yeah this is on page 79 chapter 8 of the signet paperback coffee on the mile hello John There was a little block in my throat and I tried to swallow it away. I guess you know that we're coming down to it now, another couple of days. He said nothing, only sat there holding my hands in his. I think, looking back on it, that something had already begun to happen to me, but I was too fixed, mentally and emotionally, on doing my duty to notice. Is there anything special you'd like that night for dinner, John? we can rustle you up most anything even bring you a beer if you want just have to put her in a coffee cup that's all never got the taste he said something special to eat then his brow creased below that expanse of clean brown skull then the line smoothed out and he smiled meatloaf be good meatloaf it is with gravy and mashed felt a tingle like when you get in your arm when you've slept on it except this one was all over my body in my body what else to go with it don't know boss whatever you got i guess okra maybe but i is not picky all right i said and i thought he would also have mrs janice Edgecombe's peach cobbler for dessert now what about a preacher someone you could say a little prayer with night after next It comforts a man, I've seen that many times I could get in touch with Reverend Schuster He's the man who came Wendell Don't want no preacher, John said You've been good to me, boss You can say a prayer if you want to That'd be all right. I could get knee-bound with you a bit, I guess Me? John, I couldn't He pressed down on my hands a little And that feeling got stronger You could, he said couldn't you boss i suppose so i heard myself say my voice seemed to have developed an echo I suppose i could if it came to that the feeling was strong inside me by then and it was like before when he'd cured my waterworks but it was different too and not just because there was nothing wrong with me this time it was different because this time he didn't know he was doing it suddenly i was terrified almost choked with the need to get out of there Lights were going on inside me where where there had never been lights before. Not just in my brain. All over my body. You and Mr. Howell and the other boss has been good to me, John Coffey said. I know you've been worrying, but you want to quit on it now, because I want to go boss. I tried to speak and couldn't. He could though. What he said next was the longest I ever heard him speak. I'm rightly tired of the pain I hear and feel, boss. I'm tired of being on the road, lonely as a robin in the rain. Not having nobody to go on with or tell me where Swee's coming from or going to or why. I'm tired of people being ugly to each other. It feels like pieces of glass in my head. I'm tired of all the times I've wanted to help and couldn't. I'm tired of being in the dark. Mostly it's the pain there's too much. If I could end it, I would. But I can't. <sighs> that was page 82. Okay. Um, alright. Uh, as you can hear, <laughs> dear friends, this book, this last chapter, um, has, uh, left me and and tatters a little bit, so uh, <laughs> I am excited to <laughs> transition to this next part where we are going to talk about the tremendous film. But before we do that, let's recap what we kind of explored a little bit uh, in this section. So we introduced our new characters, Sheriff Rob McGee and Homer Crybus. We have The Janice and the angry dinner scene that I really, really liked. I hope you guys give that one an extra read and tell me what you think. And then we have our dual endings. We've got the ending in chapter 12, which totally feels like a chapter 12 ending, or... Um, we've got the chapter 13, which, of course, they're together, it's totally how the book ends, but I, I don't know, I'm kind of viewing them as like this bonus, at least chapter 13 is this huge bonus, so I really, really liked that, and then, of course, we're just looking at the nature of John Coffee and who I feel he really revealed himself to be in this beautiful story, a miracle of nature. All right, everybody, I think I'm going to get myself together here and let's talk about the beautiful 1990 film, 1999 film by Frank Darabont. I'll see you there. Alright lovelies, welcome to the last chunk of this episode where we are going to explore the Green Mile theatrical release and what I highly recommend everybody is as you make your way through the six installments of the Green Mile, highly recommend you take a break in between each one to really ruminate on this amazing story then after you're all done let's uh get some popcorn and watch the green mile because when you do um it's gonna let everything all out uh at least it did for me i cried so much (laughs) um i think it was a wonderful cathartic experience and um when john uh dives I was wailing you guys and it's been a minute since that happened so I think this was just all of the catharsis from the novel and from just everything the power of this beautiful writing the power of this incredible story the tragedy of this wonderful character and what he represents and the people who he's touched I was wailing like I had to put a pillow over my mouth and sob and my poor cats were looking at me like I was being murdered so um yeah watch this by yourself and let yourself feel it and have an ugly cry it's immensely cathartic I highly recommend but let's get into it and discuss this beautiful um incredible Adaptation, one of the best, maybe my top three of all time, hands down. Um, This is, of course, uh, made by His Holiness Frank Darabont, who is an amazing filmmaker and writer who takes... King's work and just makes magic- makes more magic, rather, Uh, because we're already given a block of gold with King's writing and he just makes it visual gold, but uh, this film came out in 1999. It's approximately three hours and ten minutes, approximately, which I'm so glad for. The longer the better. Uh, It was nominated for four Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Screenplay, Best Supporting Actor. Or Michael Clark Duncan, it didn't win anything, but boy, did it win everybody's hearts! And it is currently number twenty-nine on IMDb's top-rated movie lists, with, of course, another Darabont feature, *The Shawshank Redemption*, at number one. So, I uh, got a couple points I want to talk about with you guys um, in terms of why this movie is amazing. And number one, the cast is perfection. Dear listeners, um, I mentioned throughout my episodes that I did watch The Green Mile when it came out, so that was approximately I saw it on video or DVD um, at home with my family so this was like a family movie night and we all watched it I must have been around 13 or 14 when I watched this so there has been um, a good two decades that have passed since and I haven't watched it since so now that I just did a huge rewatch after reading the novel I realized this cast is beyond incredible dear listeners, every single person cast is the perfect choice. I, I'm not joking. Every single person they chose is incredible. Like, this is the perfect cast, you guys. Oh my gosh. Um, the only, and it's not even a thing. It's totally fine. Um, I love the actors Jeffrey DeMunn and Barry Pepper who play Jeff plays Harry Tuwilliger and Barry Pepper plays Dean Stanton in My Imagination and I was as I was reading it I thought Harry might have been a little younger so I kind of wish that it was swapped that Barry Pepper was Harry and that Dean was Jeff DeMunn just a skosh, but it was totally fine but of like literally everyone, every single character uh, who is cast is the best. This is such a powerhouse film. We have huge big names, but everybody is perfect. Everyone they cast in the role just shines like the brightest star and it feels incredibly special. Burt Hammersmith is Gary Sinise, who we all know um, as uh, Stu Redman from, uh, from the Stand miniseries. And he was also... In um Mice and Men, uh with Len- as Lenny, and like it's just <laughs> there's so much. Everyone is perfect. Patricia Clarkson plays Melinda Moores, she's perfect. She's the perfect demure, sweet, lovely Melinda Moores. Uh Janice is um amazing. I I love every actor and actress who they picked for this, guys. The casting is Uh, beyond. It makes me speechless. It's just incredible. So some of the breakout performances, of course, Tom Hanks, he's America's dad. We love him so much. He's the perfect Paul Edgecombe, in my opinion. He is, he's perfect. He's wise and patient and good. And he kind of brings that older seniority to the picture he is a leader he is somebody that everybody looks up to and listens to and he's just a perfect embodiment of the supervisor of e-block he absolutely is yep um the other breakout one of my favorites is doug hutchison and he plays percy wetmore and oh my gosh you guys my my hand is just over my face right now like this is such a it i the masterful perfection of this blows me away because not only is he just his face is i think there's a, a phrase in german uh which uh if i'm saying that wrong forgive me my german is needs work uh but it the expression means a face that needs a fist and that's Percy Wetmore or slash Doug Hutchison. Like, that is his face. You really just want to punch him in the face, and that comes across. But I also love the complexity that his performance gives Percy, because we all kind of hate Percy right away. He's a total POS, Um, and in this adaptation, the film, he's even more so. I mean, he does some heinous things that just turn my blood cold. Like when he is about to, you know, when Del's getting situated in the chair and he he tells him that Mouseville is fake. And right, before, right as he's about to die, like, oh my god, like the coldness just blows me away. So Percy is a monster, but when it comes to Wild Bill, in Doug's performance, he portrays Percy as very scared like really scared and in a way the audience at least I did I I kind of pity him a little bit because you could just tell he was abused before Um, this performance is indicating that Percy is somebody who's had terrible things happen to him in the past and he's really scarred from it so it's genius it's subtle but it's absolutely huge and even even though there's a little bit of pity there I am still very sure and very comfortable that he's deserving of his fate and what I also love is you know the very first sort of um line spoken in the movie is of course Percy being overdramatic and obnoxious saying dead man walking as he's bringing John into e-block he just is saying dead man walking over and over again and uh we get some sweet poetic justice because that's exactly how he ends up a catatonic dead man walking and it's beautiful it's great and then of course our last breakout performance is the the glorious rest in peace Michael Clark Duncan who passed away in 2012 Thank you for this role. It is the role of a lifetime. And it is the performance of a lifetime. And there's never been anybody more perfect for a role than this man. Um, he just moves me so much. All of it. Um, just everything. Everything about this performance and this embodiment of John Coffey. He is John Coffey. And it's it's soul-stirring. It's it's heart-melting. It's just... It, it emotionally has me wrung out, dear folks. It has been, it's just one of the most powerful performances. And this story is, um, so emotional and, uh, it's, it's the soul quavering one. So, uh, sweet Michael Clark Duncan, rest in peace wherever you are, good sir. This is, um, a, a role that has moved me to my core and uh yeah you you, these are these are those kind of films that change you and his performance is one that just like blew me away So the second aspect of the movie that I totally love is that they made some pretty concrete decisions with setting. So Frank Darabont decided on the year 1935, which at first I was unsure about, but then I figured out why. More on that in a second. But he set it in the deep south. So we're in Louisiana. Um, And I could tell because inside uh, the warden Halmore's office, there's a map of the state of Louisiana and you can also tell because their accents. So for those of us who live in the States, uh, the more, the closer you get to the Gulf of Mexico, the slower the southern accents are and you can tell and we call that a southern drawl. So all of a sudden everything's a little bit more slowed down as you get down to Louisiana and so Um, They did such a great job uh, with the accent and with that drawl and slowing it down, the Alabama, Louisiana, it's very iconic. Um, It's a beautiful southern accent, but it's a lot slower in its delivery, probably because it's really hot down there, so uh, they're very uh, warm in that area of the country especially, uh, near the water. So 1935, Deep South, Louisiana. Um, and what I also love about the film is it was quoted by Steve King that he feels it's one of the most faithful adaptations of his work. So that alone as constant readers is something to celebrate. So I absolutely adore that this film stays true to the book, but Frank Darabont's writing and his creative decisions have enhanced it. So what I love is that we have all the major plot points are nailed, but we do have some extra stuff that doesn't happen, which usually makes me a little mad in movies. But he gets away with it because his decisions, his decisions are so wise, and he didn't change anything. Um, he didn't change anything from the story. He delivered it as is. He really rendered it beautifully. But some of the enhancements that I love, of course, is um, John Coffey or Paul asks John if there's anything he could get him, um, anything that he could do for him. And he says, I've never seen a movie before, or he calls it a, a picture show. And so they watch a movie. They allowed him to watch the movie called Top Hat, which was a Fred Astaire movie. It was released in 1935, hence why uh, the, the date changed a little bit. We have an awesome scene where Janice Edgecombe makes John Coffee a big loaf of cornbread. And John gets to eat some and he shares them with Dell and Mr. Jingles. It is precious. We also have some beautiful visuals such as glowing light and cream brashing light and light that hums and gets brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter due to the surge of energy. I adore that. It's so good. And I also love how, uh, it's Paul. This was one of the great sort of script adaptations. It's Paul who experiences the fear of hell. Um, cause in the novel we kind of get, um, inklings that like Harry Dean, Um, and brutal are like freaked out that they are going to just roast in the eternal fires because of what they're going to do like they cannot with this guy um and i think that paul feels a lot more peace having talked to john realizing he wants to go but in the movie paul's really struggling with it and he's the one who asks john do you want me to just let you run for it do you want me to just let you go and I love that that was added I love that Frank let Paul really feel it and go there and cast all his career obligations aside and just be in connection with this miraculous person and I oh it's so good So concerning the ending of the film, we've got a somber tone. I do like it. I'm curious about it. Um, And I do think it's close to the book, our chapter 13 ending, where Paul talks about how he feels there isn't any difference between damnation or salvation. Um, But what I'm curious about is that with the film, it ends with Paul kind of reflecting on his extreme old age as a bit of a curse um at least that's how i'm interpreting it and he kind of says that you know he's got to lose everyone he loves for allowing john to quote ride the lightning which is interesting so i get it i like it and it's definitely more of a kingian ending than the other one um but i i don't know i it's just interesting because i think the idea is being put forth about you know we have to pay a price and owe a life, maybe, and that Paul is in debt because of what he did to Paul. But then that would be kind of like living in in shame and um, paralyzing grief and, you know, not being free from the past. And this is just basically, you have to watch everyone you love die because of the sins of the past. And so... I, I don't know if the text is wanting us to go that far with it so maybe I am going a little too far with it but I it's like I don't think that John would have wanted that for Paul I don't think that he would have wanted Paul to live in guilt and condemnation the rest of his life um, I just think that Paul is kind of doing that to himself a little bit he can't you know, especially after this, these tragic losses that he's faced. So I don't know, it kind of unraveled me a little bit. I might be floating off the ground too much about it, but deep stuff, amazing stuff. And I I just think that the, the movie kind of ends on a resonating note of regret and it's kind of subtle, but after, you know, the credits are rolling, it, it just, it it's uh, it's a it's a tricky, it's a tricky balance there because um, we have to remember as the reader that John wanted to go. He really did. he, he did not want to be here anymore. He wanted out of the pain and uh, but yet with this ending, we've got a little bit of gray area that perhaps, Paul should have done more to let John live. He should have done more to maybe have him escape rather than just die. So it's, it just, it's an interesting sort of fork in the road um, that I maybe, maybe in a couple weeks when I'm less sort of emotionally raw about it, maybe I'll have a clearer idea of it. I think right now I'm just spinning out guys i'm spinning out from this emotional conclusion but i feel the movie ends with more of a paul feels he's being punished for killing john coffee because he was such a rare bird and this rare bird should have only you know been able to fly and be free and you know, why would you want an? But then there's like, why would you want an animal to go on suffering just because you know they're special and they could do lots of tricks for you? So, big questions, big question, guys, with the film ending and the novel ending kind of connecting it back to that. So, but overall, um, this movie is immensely emotional. I not to mention, we have a score by Thomas Newman. It is so beautiful, you guys. It is so gorgeous. You have this this tragic, you know, this music by... We've got this beautiful flute and strings and this haunting melody that kind of sinks in there. And it's so beautiful. And yet you're on death row with these men that you've kind of grown to love a little bit. And... It's just, oh gosh, the setting is off the rails great. Um, The design of the set is incredible. The color of the floor, the bars, the arches, just the whole space, it's wonderful um even the prison the the external shots of the prison it was way more elegant than I thought I was really thinking something a lot more like army barrack style so it's actually way more elaborate than I thought but the music the setting and I I just love and appreciate Frank Darabont so much because he spins King's work into visual platinum he just does um And he makes creative choices that honor these characters that celebrate them and that enhance the work and i think that's what mike flanagan does as well um and that's why i think frank darabont and mike flanagan are some of the best um people to ever be allowed to work with king's material um so i am so in love with this movie dear friends and this will lead us to our final thoughts, our final thoughts. (laughs) So um, we've made it to the end. It's been a wonderful couple weeks that we got to spend together. Thank you all so much for chipping away with me at this beautiful story that has really kind of opened up my heart more like prided open with a can opener it was a painful process to open it up but it's it's definitely ripped open and I know I said at the beginning that I want to say all that I can say and just kind of buckle lit up and um or rather close the lid on this novel but as I reach the end I I don't know if I can I I think that this story is one of those that is so blindingly bright that you can't really you know turn off the light or get it out of your mind easily um John Coffey is one of those characters that you could study and study and study and analyze to death because there's so much Nuance and so much to pick apart and dissect and examine and explore. And much like Jesus, uh, anyone mysterious and full of unearthly power, usually every flutter of their eyelash, every breath they took has been observed and debated. And you know, there's just everybody wants to put a microscope on. The Extraordinary. And so this novel, guys, is extraordinary. It's an extraordinary arrangement of King taking on a task to channel Dickens and to to hook a reader for six months straight. To basically hook us and keep us and um, bring us into... A death row prison, and and show us a man who works miracles, and the people whose life, he, whose lives he changes, and also uh, let us fall in love with a sweet little mouse, and take these characters across time and loss, and it's beyond beautiful. And I think I'm going to be talking about it for a long time to come, uh, but. Coming up, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to have a little bit of a come down from the Green Mile. I've got some fun stuff coming up. We are going to next talk about season three of Mr. Mercedes, because while I was making my way through the Green Mile, I was kind of distracting myself with this third installment of the Mr. Mercedes series on Peacock, formerly Audience Network. Um, I want to talk about that with you. And uh, we're also going to have a little bit of fun and have one of my very own King Count countdowns or rankings i should say not countdowns one of my very own king rankings it's been in the stew pot for a minute but um i think it'll be a fun a fun episode for us to just breathe a little bit (laughs) and uh let emotions stabilize because this one was a doozy um but uh thank you guys so much i am there is more to say but we've said all we need to for right now and i hope you enjoyed this episodic exploration of the green mile i think there's no better way than than this way to explore this novel part by part with a little bit of breathing room in between. And I would love to know your thoughts on your experience with the Green Mile. If you could write to me at underratedsk at gmail, that would mean the world. This is a, my heart is very receptive to all Green Mile chatter at this moment. So uh, please write in and say hello and uh, tell me about your experience with John Coffey. And then, if you haven't already, it would mean so, so much to my smashed little broken heart if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and give the show a five star so we can encounter more King fans as the Halloween season wraps up and we head into the holiday season. That would be amazing. Um, This has been way too much, way too many feels uh, for an episode, so I'm gonna go... I'm going to go be quiet and still somewhere (laughs) and perhaps cook something wherever you are in the world. um, My heart is with yours. I love you. I appreciate you. Thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for loving King and chatting King with me and um, yeah, helping me enjoy this journey of reading the most brilliant storyteller there is to walk the earth. So thank you guys so much. Take care and I'll see you soon. Bye-bye.